It's the holiday season. And this year, Santa brought us a new gift membership system. And it's really easy. Just go to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com, click the gift membership button, follow the instructions, and before you know it, you'll have a gift code that you can give to that special someone. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 435, Trials and Tribulations. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, which you can gift now through the gift membership system. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Mark, Judy, and Hyge for signing up already. Once in a while, the Chronicle has a hot take. Here's one of my favorites. Quote, The more men spoke about just law, the more unlawfully they acted. End quote. The scribes just dropped that line in the middle of 1087, but it could have easily applied to 1075 and 1076. Things are starting to get a bit hairy. And remember, as you listen to the events of this episode, William's sons, Robert and Rufus, would have been there for it. They would have been in court watching their father rule because that was how they were getting educated. And for better or worse, they were learning. And we begin with Waltheof, who had been rotting in the king's prison in Winchester since 1075. And he'd been waiting for his trial this entire time. Now, this wasn't because William was trying to drag things out. He'd actually wanted to behead Waltheof immediately. But there were all those members of court who thought Waltheof was innocent, or at least not that guilty. And complicating matters, they actually had a point. In essence, Waltheof wasn't accused of being part of a conspiracy to usurp William. He was accused of not resisting it hard enough, or fast enough, or at worst, promising to keep the conspiracy secret, which does sound bad until you consider that Waltheof immediately blabbed either to his wife or to Archbishop Lanfranc, and then rushed across the channel to tell William personally and make amends. So I dare you to narc faster than Waltheof. And topping it all off, it also looks like he acted as a cooperating witness, because we know he attended the trial of the conspirators. And it would be really strange if he wasn't called to provide testimony about what Roger and Ralph had discussed at the wedding. And yet, William still wanted this Earl dead. And honestly, it probably didn't matter to him whether or not Waltheof was guilty in this particular situation. William had spent large chunks of his life dealing with rebellions on both sides of the channel. And on this side of the channel, Waltheof had been involved in several of them. Now, he promised that he hadn't been serious about rebelling this time, and that he'd just gone to the wrong wedding. But those statements probably fell a little flat to William's ears. I mean, if you get repeatedly caught with your hand in the cookie jar, chances are your parents aren't going to take your word for it when you try and tell them that your sister did it this time. Even if it was your sister, they're still talking to the serial cookie thief. So, regardless of whether or not it made his lords happy, 
William wasn't reversing his position on Waltheof's guilt, nor the type of punishment he wanted to inflict. You see, both English and Norman law allowed for capital punishment under extreme circumstances. And conspiracy to commit regicide definitely counted as an extreme circumstance. So neither side was backing down. And instead, as a compromise, he was holding Waltheof in his prison at Winchester while he considered the Lord's arguments. And depending on which record you read, William spent somewhere between 6 and 12 months weighing the pros and cons of chopping off Waltheof's head. And even by the standards of the time, imprisoning someone for that long without trial and conviction was seen as barbaric. While this was long before the establishment of habeas corpus, there was still an expectation of expeditious and orderly justice, especially when dealing with members of the nobility. And Waltheof wasn't just any noble. He was the last remaining English-born earl. He was also married to the king's niece, and he was a powerful figure in both Northumbrian and Scandinavian dynasties. So culturally and legally, Waltheof should have been granted a quick judgment. But then William would have to actually make the decision, you know, do what he wanted to do and undermine his reputation with the court, the clergy, and the common folk, or make those other people happy and have to know that Waltheof was still walking around with a head. And while William probably didn't care all that much about what the commoners thought, the court was another matter. Those people could do things like lead rebellions against him, just like some of them already had done. And this latest revolt had shown William that even his best friend's son could turn against him. Now, in this case, he got lucky and hardly anyone joined the earls, but that could change at any point. So he had to be very careful with how he handled these people. And right now, a lot of them didn't want to see Waltheof executed. And I think that's why William held off and refused to grant Waltheof a quick judgment, even though he did actually have a legal justification for execution here. Honestly, I suspect that when he chucked Waltheof into prison, he was hoping that nature, or at least the nature of Norman prisons, would just take its course and solve the problem for him. Or maybe he hoped that Waltheof's friends would lose interest. And so... William waited for his Waltheof problem to just, you know, go away. And besides, William had some matters of state to keep him busy. See, Waltheof was an earl, and Northumbria would need to be governed while the case was pending. Or, more accurately, while William waited for the earl to just f***ing die already. The trick is, though, that appointing a new earl for Northumbria is far easier said than done. This was the North. And the North didn't tend to like it when an outsider was installed as their Earl. Honestly, they didn't even seem to like it when a local boy was installed as their Earl either. If the North had a slogan, it probably would be, F*** you, you're not the boss of me, but said in that amazing Yorkshire accent. And this approach to governance had resulted in no less than four failed Earls in less than a decade. And failure is putting it mildly. These people straight-up barbecued Earl Robert only a few years ago. The North doesn't play, so William needed to find someone who wasn't English because he was done with the English, 
and also who was willing to take a leadership position in the freaking North. And ideally, it would be someone who the Northumbrians were unlikely to casually murder. And in the end, he found his man, Walter, the Bishop of Durham. And overall, Walter was a good candidate. He was Lotharingian, which is not English. He had already held a position in the North for about five years. And he was still alive, which is just amazing. And most importantly, he was exactly the kind of guy who would love to take on the earldom. Because Walter wasn't just the Bishop of Durham. He was a real estate guy. Recently, he'd acquired King Harold Godwinson's old Abbey of Waltham, which is also his alleged burial spot. But Walter was still out there looking for more properties to acquire. Because this guy was a classic conquesting bishop meaning he was much more focused on assembling a fat portfolio than tending a flock of souls. And the hypocrisy of this situation cuts pretty deep when you recall that one of the big reasons the church gave William permission to conquer England was because Archbishop Stigand was accused of holding two offices, in this case bishoprics, at the same time. This was an offense that was called pluralism, and the church had forbidden it, claiming that holding such a large amount of property would interfere with Stigand's duties to his flock. And Stigand was excommunicated for this. And then, due to the claim that Stigand had carried out the coronation of Harold, which he hadn't, by the way, the king was subsequently declared a usurper and illegitimate. So Stigand's pluralism was one of the official reasons for the church sanctioning the Norman invasion which had resulted in entire English communities being exterminated. As such, you would think that pluralism was a pretty big deal for the church. But funny story, Walter was lining up to hold way more than two bishoprics. So he was amassing a flock way too big to minister to. But that didn't bother Archbishop Lanfranc, nor the other conquesting church officials. As far as I can tell, no one ratted him out to the Pope, and if they did, the Pope didn't care. Also, William wasn't just okay with the situation, he was downright enthusiastic about the appointment, because Walter had another quality that he wanted. Walter was willing to pay for the earldom. You see, even though Northumbria was a huge headache for the Normans, this was still William, and he wanted to get his beak wet. In short order, the price was paid, Northumbria had a new earl, and William had another task checked off his king list. Meanwhile, back in Winchester, Waltheof was quite rudely refusing to die. And even worse, nobody was losing interest in the earl. But worst of all, Waltheof was acting the absolute model of an innocent prisoner. As Waltheof waited for his oft-delayed trial, abbots and bishops were paying him visits and were told that he spoke with the holy men regularly and, with tears in his eyes, told them how deeply he regretted his involvement, such that it was, in the conspiracy. At their direction, the imprisoned earl carried out his penance, and every day, as part of his devotions, he chanted the 150 Psalms of David that he had learned in his childhood. If they had a community service program in the Middle Ages, 
You could bet that Waltheoff would have signed up for it and been out there picking up garbage. This guy was doing everything he could to make the case for why he was a good guy caught up in a bad situation. And this is what a modern PR firm would call bad optics for William. And it also wasn't helping that, according to Orderick, Waltheoff was also handsome. So William wasn't just wrongfully imprisoning and delaying trial on England's nicest, most pious earl. He was wrongfully imprisoning and delaying trial on England's hottest, pious earl. And all of these things, the piety, the innocence, the efforts of penance, the, I assume, washboard abs, all of it was running through the rumor mill of the public, pushed directly through his allies in the clergy, who in turn were trusted voices in their communities. Orderick tells us that the pro-Waltheoff verbal press campaign was going so well that, quote, his deliverance from prison was anxiously looked for during the year's delay, end quote. But the trouble was that his deliverance wasn't anxiously looked for by the one person that mattered, William. William still refused to accept any end to this situation other than a conviction leading to execution. But the questionable nature of the facts of the case and Waltheoff's all-out charm offensive meant that there still weren't enough nobles willing to convict Waltheoff. So the deadlock continued. And Waltheoff, Winchester's sexiest prisoner, remained in custody. While the pressure mounted, William kept himself busy with, you guessed it, matters of state. You see, as a nice distraction, there was the matter of Roger and Ralph's properties. I mean, these guys were rebels, and so they had their lands and titles stripped from them following the revolt of the earls. Now, Roger's earldom of Herefordshire was the easier to handle of the two, because hilariously, embarrassingly, so few local lords had supported Roger's rebellion that, for the most part, the local nobility just kept their lands and titles and kept doing what they were doing. And all William really had to handle was Roger's personal estates. Ralph's territory of East Anglia was a different matter, though. And we see a lot of changes to leadership in that region. Because Ralph had governed a good bit of territory, and so had his allies. And that meant that William now had the opportunity to install lords that he believed would be loyal to him. So various minor nobles were granted lands and titles throughout the region. But there were also the larger recipients, like Richard Fitzgilbert, who was one of the Justicars who fought against Ralph in the field. He was granted a massive chunk of land that would later be called the Honor of Clare. And he, like the other figures that William was appointing, were figures who had shown that they would be loyal to William personally. Figures who would now help him govern East Anglia. And among them was another interesting person, the Breton Lord, Alan Rufus. Alan had acquired a lot of East Anglian land following the revolt of the Earls. And that's kind of surprising, considering that Landfrank had boasted that he had rid East Anglia of, quote, the Breton shit, end quote. And we also have stories where Breton soldiers were refusing to follow William's orders in previous campaigns. And all of that is on top of several wars that William had fought against Brittany personally, and also at least one alleged poisoning between them. 
William's relationship with the Breton people was complicated and often downright hostile. In fact, at this point in the story, William is actually in the planning stages for an invasion of Brittany. So Alan Rufus ending up with a huge chunk of East Anglian land, not to mention a lot of Yorkshire land, is surprising and is likely a sign that if you're competent and personally loyal to William, this king could overlook other less important things. But at the same time, I do think that having a rebellion launched by his best friend's son had rattled William. Because while he was willing to install new lords in these properties, you know, for a price, there was one thing that he wasn't willing to do. He refused to appoint new earls to either Herefordshire or East Anglia. Those newly vacant earldoms remained unfilled, thus fragmenting the local power structure in those regions and orienting them towards the crown, towards him. Meanwhile, in Winchester, Waltheof was still in prison. He was also still breathing, still gorgeous, and still really popular. If anything, his popularity was growing. And while we don't have any recorded statements by William on this development, it was probably something along the lines of, how long does it take for this asshole to fucking die? Are you fucking serious? And now he's acting like he's the fucking Virgin Mary? Fuck this and fuck him and fuck his stupid fucking abs. Fuck. But you know, in French, if William was a modern corporation, this is the point where he fires half of his executive team, all of his PR team, and hires a crisis consultant agency. This situation was spiraling out of control, and every day it went on, it was getting worse. But then again, unless William was willing to give Waltheof the old poisoned glove treatment, this was pretty much out of his hands, and the only thing that would resolve it would be if some of the members of court changed their minds. And actually, wouldn't you know it? Some of them were. Looking at the commentary of Orderic and others, what was swaying the Norman nobility wasn't the facts of the case, nor Waltheos' piety, nor his mountainous biceps. No, what was getting their attention was the sheer amount of land that was up for grabs. At least a few of them had done the math, and they realized that if Waltheof was restored to power, then he'd get his lands back, meaning that there would be less in the pot for everyone else. And slowly but surely, a number of courtiers were adopting a rather broad definition of what constituted disloyalty to the crown. But this process was also taking time, so Waltheof continued to meet with priests and monks, and William prepared for trial. A trial that was so important that it's actually the best recorded case in the entire reign of William the Conqueror. And it was a trial that had absolutely nothing to do with Waltheof. No, William was still hoping that he would just politely die in prison. William was preparing for the trial of his half-brother, Bishop Odo, because this was the House of Normandy. And being embroiled in scandals and making a bad reputation for yourself was a family tradition. Now, these days, Bishop Odo is probably best known for commissioning the Bayeux Tapestry, 
and for being featured feasting his way through the ensuing carnage. But Odo was much more than just the Bishop of Bayou and the chief foodie of the invasion. After the Battle of Hastings, William gave the title of Harold's little brother, Leofwina, to Odo. And we're not talking about a ceremonial title here. Odo was made the Earl of Kent, and he gained both the powers and the lands of that honor, meaning he instantly became one of the most wealthy land magnates in southern England. And if you're concerned that the church might be upset about the potential pluralism that was happening here, don't worry. Just like with Walcher, the church was totally fine with pluralism when the Normans were doing it. And I can't imagine how furious this must have made Stigand, given that he was still alive when Odo was elevated. But it wasn't like there was much he could do. And so Bishop slash Earl Odo went freely about his duties in Kent, cracking skulls, collecting taxes, and of course, feasting. But when Lanfranc was installed as the Archbishop of Canterbury, things started to change for Odo. You see, Lanfranc was Lanfranc. And how many times have we seen him embroiled in power struggles? How often do we see him writing mean letters where he demands more authority? And Odo was rich, really rich. Even worse, he was occupying the same region as Lanfranc, which meant that Lanfranc had to see Odo's wealth on a daily basis. It was an intolerable situation. And eventually, Lanfranc had to do something about it. Lucky for him, being the Archbishop of Canterbury meant that he had something that Odo lacked. A veritable army of literate nerds who could go through every writ, every charter, every scrap of paper to search for anything that might indicate that Odo's lands actually belonged to Lanfranc. And they apparently did a good job. Because pretty soon, Lanfranc had a big list of documents that showed that Odo was holding a bunch of estates that were previously owned by the archbishopric. Armed with this, Lanfranc marched down to the king's court and accused Odo of defrauding the church by wrongfully taking estates owned by Christ Church Canterbury. And we're told he did it energetically. I bet he did. Now, Odo was the king's half-brother, and he had been one of William's most trusted commanders. He was part of the conquest from day one, and he had proven himself a capable leader time and time again. He also had another quality that William probably liked even more. He was ruthless. For example, you'll recall that in the early conquest period, William had tasked Odo and Fitzosburne with subduing the English while William was busy dealing with matters in Normandy. And the two of them had been so aggressive that the English had pled for mercy, which Odo and Fitzosburne refused to grant. Odo had many qualities that served William's interests. But... Odo was also wealthy, political, and ambitious. We see him courting relationships with powerful political figures. We see him building a positive public image as a patron of the arts and of scholarship. We see him using his incredible wealth to endow church properties. And if he hadn't yet commissioned the bio-tapestry, in which he's prominently featured, he soon would. And that level of ambition probably wasn't appreciated by William, 
And considering that he was also a warlike bishop, if someone claimed that he was stealing lands, well, it would have been really easy to imagine. So William, upon hearing Lanfranc's accusations that Odo had defrauded both the church and the crown, immediately ordered a meeting of the court to hear the matter. And because this involved Kentish lands, he ordered them to gather at the meeting place for the Shire Court of Kent at Penadon Heath. But for some reason, even though he had every right to preside over this trial, William stepped down. Now, conflicts of interest didn't bar William from adjudicating cases. He'd heard other cases where he clearly had a dog in the fight. So why step down here and now? It's hard to say because our surviving records of this trial were written long afterwards. I mean, they do appear to have been based on earlier documents, which may well have been contemporary, and as such, these surviving accounts are very likely to be relatively reliable. And they are also full of details. But they don't include this detail. So it's hard to know for sure. Now, Orderick claims that Odo was starting to make William nervous. And considering the bishop's ambitious nature and the general rebellious political climate of the time, that may well have been the case. But I'm guessing that the reason William declined the right to preside over this case was far more political than that. Odo had amassed a lot of political power. And so had Lanfranc. Both of these men held properties and political ties that went far beyond the estates they were arguing over. And it's likely that there were a lot of powerful figures within England, figures that William's reign relied upon, who had an interest in the outcome of this trial on both sides. So if William was the one deciding this case, then no matter who won, a faction of his ruling elite would suddenly be harboring a grudge against him. And that was the last thing he needed. So it might have made a lot of sense to just stay out of it even if it meant losing the chance to influence the outcome of this trial. But, you know, that's just a guess. The records simply don't tell us why the king delegated his authority to Bishop Geoffrey of Coutances, who actually was another of William's warlike bishops. But regardless of why he did it, it happened, and Odo and Lanfranc accepted the decision. And the trial that followed was substantial. We're told that so many questions regarding ownership, inheritance, and legal customs of England were raised that the trial couldn't be completed in a single day. Instead, it required three full days to resolve. And that detail was absolutely shocking to the scribes. And so they took time to point out that this was due to how numerous the matters of fact were in this case. Now, in our modern day, three days for a real estate fraud trial would be lightning quick. For example, a certain someone's real estate trial that's going on right now has been going on for months. But back in the 11th century, they were a bit less rigorous with their fact-finding. And so three days was a mind-bendingly long trial. And one of the problems that the court was facing was that while Lanfranc's documents made it seem like a slam dunk, once you dug into the facts of ownership, things weren't nearly so cut and dry. If you have a really good memory, you might remember back to episode 366, where Robert of Jumiege 
who was then serving as the Archbishop of Canterbury, worked hand-in-glove with Edward the Confessor to exile Earl Godwin and his family. Now, among the laundry list of crimes that they compiled against Godwin was one that was very relevant to the situation between Odo and Lanfranc. Godwin was accused of despoiling, meaning possessing, lands that belonged to the archbishopric. And, as you might recall, the House of Godwin came out on top in that particular conflict. Robert was deposed and exiled, and the disputed lands remained in Godwin hands. And in time, they were passed down through the Godwinson line, until the death of Leofwena. So a lot of these disputed lands were actually inherited by Odo when he acquired Leofwena's title. So not stolen, as Lanfranc claimed. But of course, this was all assuming that the inheritance was legal. And asking that question opened a whole new can of worms. I mean, these were Normans arguing over English lands. So what laws apply? English laws? Norman laws? Both? And what about land transfers that happened during the reign of Edward the Confessor? Or transfers that took place during the reign of Harold? And you might recall that William claimed that the Godwinsons and their supporters had forfeited their lands. So precisely who owned the disputed lands following Hastings and to what extent was a confusing question. And while William had installed Odo in Leofwina Godwinson's earldom, did that include all of the former lands? And should English law or current Norman law determine that? This whole thing gets messy really fast. And we're told that for this trial, the court was deliberately packed, not just with Norman aristocrats, but also, quote, those English who were well acquainted with the traditional laws and customs of the land, end quote. Meaning they were bringing in local experts. So choice of law was clearly on the mind of the court right from the beginning. And it was an open question during the trial. This was such an issue that William actually tasked Athelrich with advising the trial. Now, Athelrich was well known as one of the best legal scholars in the land, and he'd also been the Bishop of Selsey. But we haven't seen him in quite some time. And that's because in 1070, William had Bishop Athelrich arrested, deposed, and thrown in prison. Why? It was never really clear. William had chucked him into jail for reasons. And now, about six years later, the poor old man was loaded up into a cart. I kid you not, they plopped him onto a cart and then sent down to Kent to advise the court on how to handle this land dispute. And considering all that he'd been through, I doubt he was an impartial advisor on the matter of English law. Actually, it would be weird if he was. Ever since the conquest began, we've seen Quislings appearing in the record and advising William and his officers on the particulars of English law. In fact, while we've been talking a lot about Waltheof within the context of his imprisonment, we should remember that before he was imprisoned, he served as a member of William's court. And actually, Waltheof had served as one of those English advisors during the dispute over the lands of Ely following Harroward's rebellion. The truth is, these cases often included English collaborators who would advise the Norman parties in their land disputes. 
And this gets really ugly when you consider that William was not a man who saw himself as subject to English law. Quite the opposite. The law was a tool for him to use on others. That's why he had these advisors. After all, England had an entire bureaucratic apparatus that enabled it to function for generations. And if you have someone who understands English law, then you can better wield that apparatus. You also have the opportunity to utilize a whole new set of laws to your advantage. The use of English law and cooperating English nobles wasn't a bug in William's England. It was a feature. And I don't think that this perspective was restricted to England. William appears to have seen himself as above all laws. Because actually, the Pope had publicly stated that he disapproved of how William had deposed and imprisoned Athelrich. In response, William didn't put him back in power, nor reverse course. And only now that he had a use for the old priest, do we see Athelrich being brought out, loaded into a cart, and shipped to Kent. That's not exactly the action of someone who saw himself as subject to the rule of law, or anything else for that matter. So how the law would interact with these disputes was a complicated question, and it was dragging out this trial. Another issue was timing. The conquest era was a relentless stream of property disputes because, you know, people were absolutely stealing land constantly. And when those thefts happened without the proper sanctions, well, sometimes a court might hear the plea. When that happened, it became common for legal authorities to look at what was going on during, quote, the time of King Edward, end quote. And the Normans meant something very specific when they said this. They weren't looking for precedent set by legal standards and practices during the reign of King Edward the Confessor. Nor were they interested in how things were during the reign of Edward in general. Rather, they were interested in precisely who owned what on the specific day when Edward the Confessor died. Meaning that as far as the Normans were concerned... History really did start the moment that William inherited England. Basically, what you've got is, in the beginning, there was darkness and nothing mattered. Then Edward died, and in that moment, there was light, because William became the rightful king of England. And, uh, well, we'll just ignore everything else that happened between January 5th and December 25th of 1066. Functionally, for the English... Time begins on January 5th of 1066. And as such, lands could only be restored if they have been improperly seized since the death of King Edward. And as you might imagine, this had some pretty big implications for the case. Because Lanfranc was asserting property rights over lands that had changed hands back when King Edward was very much alive. And thus they were not in church hands at that key time of King Edward. So this left Odo in the position where he was simply arguing for the status quo, you know, keep things in line with the vaunted time of King Edward. And Lanfranc, rather awkwardly, was arguing against it. And that fact very well might be why the records of this trial, which were written by holy men, don't mention King Edward at all. Not once, even though English law and custom was so key to the issue that they dragged poor old Athelrich all the way to Kent to comment on it. So, all in all, 
This trial was a mess. And even though Odo and Lanfranc spent three days arguing, they only managed to resolve a portion of the issues in dispute. And Odo was forced to give back some of the Kentish lands, but he kept the rest. Soon after the trial concluded, Athelrich died, which seems like a smart move on his part. But with the astounding length of this trial and the chaos of trying to sift through laws and timelines, this result was anticlimactic and probably also a little depressing. And it exposed an obvious problem for the Norman regime because this was no way to run a kingdom. And it was probably at about this point that people began to realize that they needed a solution. Something like a formalized record of who owned what and when. You know, both at that special time of King Edward, but also at the time of the writing. Basically, a medieval census. But census sounds boring and lame, so how about Doomsday Book? Yeah, that sounds f***ing metal. But that stuff is for the nerds, and William had more than enough of that kind of thing to last a lifetime, and he wanted to get back to good old-fashioned matters of Norman rule. Namely, getting on a ship, sailing somewhere interesting, and killing the people that you meet there. And he knew just the place he wanted to go. Brittany. That rebel bastard Ralph was sitting all cozy in his castle while William was up to his eyeballs with real estate matters and dead priests. It was downright unfair. But there was one thing holding him back from heading off on holiday. He couldn't just leave England while Waltheof was still alive. If he did, the Earl very well might escape and launch another rebellion. I mean, people were really mad about his imprisonment, and they were only getting madder. Well, the little people were mad. The people who mattered, on the other hand, you know, the people who populated court, well, they were finally coming around. And Orderic doesn't mince words about why they had a change of heart. Waltheof was wealthy, and if he was convicted of treason, then his substantial estates would be forfeit. So, the only thing that stood between the courtiers and a veritable gold rush was Waltheof. So, at last, William found his majority, and a trial was convened. Hastily. The language of Orderic is hard to parse. But given his comments about timing and lack of delays, it sounds like this trial may have taken place late at night. And given Waltheof's popularity, the thin basis of the accusations, and the controversial nature of this imprisonment, you could imagine that they might have wanted to try and sneak the trial through. But regardless of when, we know that a trial was held. And we're told that there was some discussion, but in the end, Waltheof's supporters were in the minority. The Earl was convicted of, quote, treasonable conspiracy against his fellow lords by not openly resisting their designs against the king's life, or at once denouncing their criminal projects, end quote. In response, Waltheof's supporters requested a temporary period of delay. But fearing he might escape in the interim, William and his court denied the request. Instead, they marched Waltheof straight up St. Giles' Hill. We're told that the people of Winchester were still asleep as he was brought up there, and that dawn was just breaking. 
We are told that some took note of what was happening, and they came to the hastily assembled execution spot. When Waltheof saw them, he took off his courtly robes that denoted him as an earl, which he had been entitled to wear at court, and he gave them to the poor. Then he fell to the ground in tears. More people began to take notice, and the executioner and the guards started to get nervous. If the townsfolk raised the alarm, this situation can turn against them really quickly. So they told Waltheof to rise so they could carry out the king's command. Waltheof rose to his knees and asked to be allowed to pray. Through sobs, he started the Our Father. In the middle of the words, the executioner swung his sword and cut off Waltheof's head. And then Orderic, ever the dramatist, tells us that the head of Waltheof kept talking after it was severed from the body, and it completed the prayer. Deliver us from evil. Amen. It was now morning, and the people of Winchester began to realize what had happened here, and more were gathering at the execution site. We're told they, quote, abandoned themselves to grief, men and women joining in loud lamentations for the fate of Earl Waltheof, end quote. And if you're the executioner or the guards, that's not a good scene. And so I'm guessing that's why Worcester reports that Waltheof's body was immediately chucked into a ditch and left to rot. No need to stick around and handle a burial. They got to get out of there fast before they see what the townsfolk are going to do next. Worcester then adds that the Norman aristocracy worked relentlessly to erase the memory of Waltheof, which, yeah, I bet they did. But it was all for naught. Waltheof's body was later retrieved and entombed at Croyland, where a cult of his martyrdom soon rose up. The people here had turned to God, because where else could they turn? Waltheof was a stark reminder that the Normans ruled through law, but the laws did not rule them. And this whole ordeal reminds me of a quote by, of all people, Poitiers. Quote, When iniquity reigns, it most often veils its greed under the pretext of avenging crime, condemning the innocent man to punishment in order to confiscate his possessions. End quote. Or, in modern terms, when things get crazy, Evil bastards will talk a lot about law and order, but what they really want is to condemn the innocent so they can take their stuff. And I think Poitiers really had a point here. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us online. And you can find links to all our various communities in the aptly named communities section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.